like to have us turn uh, to our text this morning, which is John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. John 17, 20 through 23, and that's found on page 878 if you're following along in the Bibles that are in the pews here. Uh, We're continuing a sermon series uh, looking at the intersection of faith and politics. We started this a couple of weeks ago. As I've said, I think just about every week that we've been in this series, and I'm probably going to continue to say it, this is not a series uh, where I'm going to tell you uh, who you need to vote for or which party to support. We're not going to get into specific pieces of legislation or judicial decision making because I am neither a political scientist, nor a policymaker, nor a lawyer. I'm a pastor. My job as a pastor is to help us think biblically and theologically about how we can engage all areas of our lives in a Christian and Christ-like way, and that's what we're seeking to do in this series, too. We've spent the first three weeks of this series building a bit of a biblical and theological foundation for why we need to talk about this, and we're going to start nailing that down and applying it more today and in the coming weeks. And we're going to start here with Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. He is praying for his disciples, those who were part of his earthly ministry back then. But then we get to a point in his prayer where he kind of makes a shift, and that's where we pick things up at verse 20. So Jesus says, my prayer is not for them, the disciples who lived and ministered with him. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one father just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in you, or I in them and you in me that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, a few years ago, a congregant at the church that I served in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, came up to me after one of our morning worship services and said, um, had a question. They said that they had a question for me. We had recited the Apostles' Creed as part of our worship together that morning. And she, she said to me, why is it that we say we believe in the Holy Catholic Church? Aren't we Protestants? I told her that I used to have that same question, but I explained that just like play, park, and bark are words that have more than one meaning in the English language, the word Catholic has more than one meaning too. For instance, spelled with a capital C, Catholic refers to the Roman Catholic Church, which is the formal religious institution that Catholic Christians are a part of. When it's used with a lowercase c, though, like it is in the Apostles' Creed and elsewhere, then Catholic simply means universal, worldwide, or widespread. And that's the sense that we mean when we recite the Apostles' Creed together as Christians. We mean that we believe that God's church is universal, all-encompassing, and not limited by either time or space. All Christians all around the world are part of God's church, and Christians throughout history are part of God's church too. That's what we're saying when we say that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. We're saying that we believe God has a body of people throughout time and space who serve him and who seek to accomplish his purposes in this world. Because of that, though, we're also saying one more thing. 
when we talk about our belief in the Holy Catholic Church. You see, because we believe that all Christians everywhere are part of God's church, when we recite that line in the Apostles' Creed, we're also saying that as Christians, we are united. So united, in fact, that there is nothing and no one that can separate or divide us as Christian believers. That's the second part of what we mean when we say that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. We mean that as Christians, we are one body, one family, one united and universal church. And yet I think it's fair to wonder how much we actually believe that. Uh, You see, despite our creeds, confessions, and claims to the contrary, as Christians, the fact of the matter is that we don't demonstrate unity very well. As Francis Chan writes in his recent book, Until Unity, we are currently the most divided faith group on earth, and there isn't a close second. That's actually a bit of an understatement, as because according to the most recent data I could find as I was researching this sermon, there are now over 45,000 different Christian denominations and churches around the world. 45,000. For people who claim to believe in unity, we do a pretty lousy job of showing it, don't we? And that's sad. That, I think, is sad for a number of reasons. First, as we'll talk about a bit later, I believe our disunity and discord as Christians profoundly harms our witness when it comes to spreading the Christian faith. Put simply, division is not a good look for people who claim not only to be united, but actually members of the same family. We call each other brothers and sisters, right? If we're members of the same family, then I think it, uh, it goes without saying that we look like a pretty dysfunctional family right now to the rest of the world. And so it's not hard to understand why people aren't clamoring to join. But the other reason I think our lack of unity is sad is because it's the exact opposite of what Jesus prays for here in this prayer. You see, this is Jesus, or one of Jesus' last prayers on earth, often called his high priestly prayer because he's interceding like a priest on our behalf. This is Jesus' last prayer before he's arrested, abandoned, tortured, and ultimately crucified. And as such, it gives us a window into what's going on in his mind at the time, what's important to him, what's occupying his thoughts as he's staring down the barrel at the cross. And so what is that? What do we see here in this prayer from Jesus? What seems to be important to him? What matters to him so much that it's one of the last things he prays here on earth? Well, he prays for unity in his church. Jesus says, I pray for those who will believe in me, that all of them may be one, that they may be one as we are one, so that they may be brought to complete unity. I don't think it's going too far to say that this is Jesus' dying wish. He wants his church, his people, his disciples, both back then as well as us today, to be united, to be one, to be unified and bound together in such a way that there is nothing that can break us apart. That's what Jesus cared about on his way to the cross. That's what was important to him. That's what mattered to him so much that he was willing to use some of his last moments on earth to pray for it. I would humbly suggest then that as his people, as his church, as some of the very people who he was praying for here, that if unity mattered that much to him, it ought to matter to us too. There are a lot of reasons I think we ought to care about unity, but Jesus gives us three here in this prayer. 
Three reasons why unity matters. Three reasons why unity is important. Three reasons why we ought to care about and display unity together as Christian believers. First, Jesus says our unity as Christians says something about God. It says something about his character. It says something about who he is. It says something about what he's like. Second, our unity says something about us. It says something about our character as Christians, about what we are like, about who we are as Christians, or at least who we are supposed to be. And then third, our unity says something to the world, to the broader culture, to people outside the church. So our unity as Christians says something about God, it says something about us, and it says something to the world. Let's start with that first one, what our unity says about God. As Christians, we believe in one God. Jesus actually prays about that here in this prayer. In verse 21, he prays to his Father, may they, the church, be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Then in the next verse, he prays, I have given them, the church, the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. Jesus is talking about the oneness, the, the, the unity, the interconnectedness of God here. Uh, truth be told, he's actually riffing a little bit on another prayer that we find elsewhere in Scripture. Found in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, and known as the Shema, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That prayer is central to the Jewish faith. For millennia, religious Jews have prayed that prayer daily. In fact, religious Jewish people still today pray that prayer every day as well. And as Christians, we have inherited that idea of the oneness of God from them. Like Jewish people, we too believe in one God, and like the Jewish people, we too believe that our one God is one. And yet, and this is kind of mysterious, right? We also believe that one God is made up of three persons. And this is where we have to acknowledge that things get a little hard to understand. We believe in one God, but three persons. One God, but God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God, but three. Another of our creeds, the Athanasian Creed, the one we all ignore, says it well, I think, when it says this. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, Yet there are not three gods, there is but one God. Earlier it explains it even more when it says, now this is the Catholic faith. There's that word Catholic again, right? It just means that all true Christians throughout time and history and across the world believe this. Now this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit is still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. One God, but three. Three persons, but one God. God is three, God is one, and the three are one together. If your head is spinning at this point, I don't blame you, okay? But that's what we believe. We believe in a God who is one. We believe in a God who is three. We believe, in other words, in a God who is unity in diversity. The three persons are distinct, and yet they are one. And that's where we come in. That's why our unity as Christians matters. That's what it says about God. 
it says that as mysterious as that idea is, the idea of the Trinity, the idea that God is one and three and yet somehow united and together while also being distinct, our unity together as Christian believers says that that's possible. Because as Christians, we are different and distinct, right? You are not me and I am not you. We are different, we are distinct people and yet we are also united together in the body of Christ. We form one body, we become one when we come together. Like our God, we too, though different persons, are united. Our, our God is unity and diversity, and when we as his people are united together, we reflect and we provide a testimony to that. In other words, we are a living example of what we believe is also true about God. That yes, there can be such a thing as distinction, difference, separation, but one that exists in the context of oneness. That's what our unity says about God. It says that he as diverse and unified together is like us as a diverse and unified body. Or maybe more accurately, we are like him. So our unity provides a witness to what we believe to be true about God. That's the first thing we need to understand. That's what our unity says about God. But our unity also says something about us. And this is the second thing that Jesus gets at in his prayer here, which is that as Christians, there is nothing that unifies us quite like our faith. That's what Jesus is praying here when he says, I pray for those who will believe in me through there, that's the disciples' message, that all of them may be one. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. What brings us together? What unites us? What binds us together and makes us one? Jesus says it's our faith as Christians. It's it's the gospel. It's the message of God's good news that we've passed on from generation to generation. Nothing unites us quite like that. You know, I used to work out a lot using home fitness programs. I still work out a lot, it's just that no one can tell. And um, the programs I used to use were all by the same company. They were Beachbody programs, maybe you've seen their commercials at one point or another. That's the company behind programs like P90X, Insanity, T25, and a whole host of other ones. And over the years, I accumulated a bunch of them. I had the original P90X, P90X2, P90X3. I had the original Insanity, and then Insanity Asylum, both volumes one and two, and then Insanity Max 30. I even had a program called Body Beast, which clearly worked. So, and at the end of those workouts, and they were all DVDs, kids' DVDs are those things that people used to watch videos on about a thousand years ago, Um, Beachbody would have ads. They would have ads at the end of those videos for their other workout programs or for their diet and supplement products, and they also had ads for something called Summit. Summit was an annual Beachbody event where Beachbody coaches from around the world would get together and learn how to grow their business. Truth be told, it kind of seemed like a pyramid or multi-level marketing scheme. Um, Not that anyone in West Michigan would know anything about that. Amway. Um, But it was a place where Beachbody coaches could go and meet celebrity trainers like Tony Horton and Shalene Johnson and others and then learn how to network and sell Beachbody products. 
And one of the ads for Summit at the end of those videos, they had some of the coaches who had attended Summit trying to sell others on it and tell them to go and, and attend. And so about halfway through that ad, one of the coaches would say, just the whole Beachbody community, you know, it's like a big family. You just feel close with them instantly. And then a little later, another one of the coaches says, it's a people. I mean, look at this. This is the greatest thing you could ever be a part of. Now, I like working out as much as the next person. I actually like working out more than the next person. Um, but the greatest thing you could ever be a part of? Really? You see, I started using those videos in seminary. I was training for pastoral ministry at the time. I was training to be a leader in the church. And those quotes from those coaches in that ad, especially that second one, that the Beachbody community was the greatest thing you could ever be a part of, they always struck me as odd. I remember thinking, that's not the greatest thing you could ever be a part of. That's not your true family. That's not what should unite you with other people more than anything else. It should be the church. That's your true family. That should be your people. That's where you should feel that sense of unity and oneness. You should feel it in the church. Now, maybe it's just my bias as a Christian and a pastor, but when other people talk about groups like a workout community or a hobby group or some other gathering of people like it's the greatest thing that's ever happened, I can't help but think what they're really craving is the Christian community. What they're really craving is the church. What they're really craving is to be here. After all, again, as Jesus says, this is where true unity happens. This is where we find an affinity and a like-mindedness that transcends everything else. This is where we find something that binds us together like nothing else can. We find that in our faith we find it in the church. We find it in God's community of believers who he has called out of darkness into his wonderful light together. N.T. Wright says it well, I think, in his commentary on this passage when he writes, unity is vital. Often we sense it heard like soft music through the partition walls we set up around ourselves. Sometimes we experience it when for a moment we meet Christians from a totally different background and discover that despite our many differences and the traditions that keep us apart, we know a unity of love and devotion that cannot be broken. I forget where I first heard it, but I remember that somebody once said that we as Christian believers have more in common with a Christian in another country than we do with our unbelieving neighbor next door. Theologian Richard Mao tells a story about that. He says that once after visiting Christians in another country, whenever he heard about that country in the news, his first thought was, I have family there. He says before he went to visit those Christian believers, when, when that country would come up in the news, just sort of breeze past, he didn't think about it too much. But after he had met those other believers, when that country would come up in the news, he would think, my brothers are there, my sisters are there, I have family there. Nothing else unites us like our faith. That's what our unity says about us. It says we are a people united more than anything else by our common bond in Christ. That bond in Christ is, or at least should be, the most unifying thing in our lives. And that says something to the rest of the world, too. That's the third thing we see in Jesus' prayer here. 
As Jesus prays in verses 20 and 21, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. A little later, he prays that when the church is unified, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me even as you have loved, or and loved them even as you have loved me. What Jesus is saying there is that our unity as Christians is evangelistic. It's attractive. It draws people in. In a world of division, discord, and disagreement where people fight over just about everything, Christian unity, when done right, is beautiful. It's winsome. It convinces people that Jesus really is the Son of God. It convinces them that the church really is his people. And it makes them want to be part of it too. I'll put it this way. The church is a miracle in our, in our culture and society and world these days. We find so many things to fracture over and splinter apart and fight over that to have a group of people who are united in one thing across all sorts of other divisions it looks like a miracle to this world. Again, N.T. Wright puts it in his commentary this way. He says, in case we miss the point, the result of the church's unity will be that the world will see and know that this kind of human community, united across all traditional barriers of race, custom, gender, or class, can only come from the action of the creator God, so that the world may believe. Or as Chan writes, It will always be easier to seek out the people whose interests and affiliations most closely resemble your own. People whose life experiences resonate with yours and inform your choices and passions in similar ways. It will always be easier to write off those with whom your personality or opinions clash. But there is something so beautiful and powerful about a group of incredibly diverse people uniting under a common banner. It shows, that the, it shows the world that our common obsession with the worth of our king is more powerful than any social, political, cultural, or economic divide. It shows them a picture of heaven. That's what our unity achieves. It achieves a degree of witness that simply does not exist when we are not united. Put simply, the more united we are as Christians, the more the world will know Christ. And the less united we are as Christians, the less the world will know Christ. It's just that simple. Which is part of why our recent fracturing along political lines is so disturbing to me. You see, while we might say that we have more in common with Christians in another country than with our unbelieving neighbor next door, if our unbelieving neighbor happens to have the same yard signs as us, happens to vote the same way that we do, happens to support the same parties and candidates and platforms that we like, then I wonder. I wonder if our common bond in Christ really is enough to overcome that bond. In fact, I wonder that not just for Christians in other countries, but for Christians in this country too. I wonder if we truly feel like our faith in Jesus unites us across party lines or if those political allegiances that we hold actually unite us more. Because truth be told, at least from my vantage point, it seems like there are a lot of Christians these days who while they would never actually admit it out loud, feel at a deep level 
like they have more in common with those who vote the same way than they do with Christian believers on the other side of the political aisle. I've told this story before, but a while back I was talking with another pastor about that. He's older than me. Uh, He actually retired a couple of years ago. And so I asked him about this. I said, you know, I'm still pretty new in ministry. I'm definitely new in this kind of role as a senior pastor. I said, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the church is more politically divided than it has been before. I mean, maybe it's just because I'm young and I haven't, you know, been in ministry that long or seen enough of the history, but are we fracturing in ways that we didn't used to? Has it always been like this or is this new? He looked at me and he said, Brandon, this is the worst I've ever seen it. He said, you used to be able to have a congregation of Democrats and Republicans in the same church. They might not see eye to eye, but at least they could live together. But now, he said, people are leaving churches over political differences, and I have never seen that before. Before the last five or six years, I never saw someone leave a church because of politics, but now I'm seeing it all the time. I think he's right. I'm seeing that too. More than seeing it, though, I'm feeling it. There's a tension around our politics these days that is driving us apart in broader society, but also here in the church, and we can feel that tension. And what that tells me is that despite our creeds, confessions, and claims otherwise, for many Christians these days, there is a de facto deeper unity around our preferred party, platform, candidate or cause operating under the surface and what it is doing is it is undermining the unity that we are supposed to have together in Jesus Christ. So, what do we do? How do we fix that? How do we try to stuff the genie back in the bottle? How do we make sure that it is our unity in Christ that supersedes all the other things that vie for our attention and allegiance? I've got two thoughts. And then maybe more tonight if you come back. First, we need to dwell in Christ. And I mean really dwell with him. We need to spend time with Christ. As one of my seminary professors used to say, we need to marinate ourselves in him. We need to soak him up and become one with him. That's the only way we're going to be able to be one with each other if we are first one with Jesus Christ. We're only going to be able to be one with each other if we are one with him first. Jesus prays that here. He says, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. Then in the next verse, he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. Leon Morris puts it like this in his commentary. He says, indwelling is the secret of it all. Christ indwells believers and the Father indwells him. Likewise, Fred Bruner writes, the first way this unity occurs is not in meetings with one another, as important as those meetings are. The first way is for us individually, domestically, and corporately to seek our own spiritual lockage into Jesus and his Father in a way that even minutely is comparable to the lock that the Father and Son have on each other. 
By whatever legitimate means we can find, we will first seek a deep vertical connection with the Father and the Son, comparable to the Father's and the Son's deep connection with each other, so that then we can find our ways into union with each other horizontally in the common Christian life. In other words, we will only be as united with each other as we are first united to God. As long as we're more united to Fox News or CNN or Sean Hannity or Rachel Maddow or Donald Trump or Joe Biden or whoever or whatever it is, as long as we are more united to them than we are to God, we are not going to be united with each other. And if we're not united with each other, I think it's fair to wonder whether whether we are really united enough with God. Because what Jesus is saying here is that one of the fruit, one of the fruits of our union with him is union with each other. So if we are splintering apart and divided, are we really united enough to him? So the first way to recapture unity in the church is to dwell in our relationship with God. The second way to recapture unity in the church sounds so obvious, it's, it's so obvious that, and so simple to say that it, it kind of sounds you know, overly simplistic but we need to learn to love each other again despite differences. We can have different opinions and still love each other. Chan says, think about your specific church family. Don't be quick to lament disunity in the American church or the global church while you're unkind, dismissive, and loveless towards the people in your own church body. Dietrich Bonhoeffer warned about the difference between loving the concept of a united community versus loving the people who are actually in our community. And then quoting Bonhoeffer, he writes, he who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. I used to see this all the time with some of my friends in college. They loved the idea of community. They were always talking about community. Let's be in community together. Let's do community. Let's, let's move into the same houses together until all of a sudden the community said or did something they didn't like. They were more in love with the dream or the idea of community than the actual people in their community. And that destroys community. That's what they're saying here. Chan writes about this often, but what he basically is saying in his book is that Christians have not been loving enough towards each other. We have allowed our differences and our disagreements, including our political ones, to separate, divide, and cause us to fall out of love with each other as brothers and sisters. If we hope to heal that, if we want to fix it, if we want to shrink back this chasm that has arisen between us and make it disappear, then we need to learn to fall back in love with each other again. In short, we need to learn to love each other like the brothers and sisters that we are. More than that, even, we need to learn to love each other like God has first loved us. Which brings us to the gospel. You see, there is no divide, political or otherwise, like the one that we created between us and God. God made us in his image for relationship with him, for the kind of unity and oneness with him that supersedes and surpasses all others. And yet, instead of living in that relationship with him, we chose to go our own way. We chose to rebel against him. We chose our own will over his, and so we opened up a divide between us and God that, try though we might, is impossible 
for us to fix. So God fixed it for us. He came across that divide. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to reach across the distance, the chasm that we had created between us and heal our discord, our division, our sin, and make us his people again. That's how God has loved us. As his people united to and in Christ, that is also how we are called to love one another as well. So that the world may believe. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we'll find a million ways to destroy ourselves, to destroy your world, to destroy our relationship with you. And yet you'll find a million and one ways to heal us, to call us back to you, to reunite us in relationship with you and with each other. So through the power of your Holy Spirit, the only way that this is possible, Lord, work in our hearts and our minds. Make us brothers and sisters in Christ Help us to remember the grace and the love that you have first shown us so that we can be conduits of that grace and love towards others, all in front of the eyes of a watching world and therefore present a testament and a witness to the fact that you have sent your son, to the fact that you have loved us, and to the fact that you love this world too. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.